0: Welcome, everyone. This is a Council of Institutional Investors educational podcast. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. Our topic is insider trading and the audit process. Our special guests are Professors Saman Arif and Joseph Schroeder of the Kelly School of Business at Indiana University and Professor Daniel Taylor of the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Professors Arif, Schroeder, and Taylor, as well as Professor John Kepler, At the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, are the co authors of a new research paper entitled Audit Process Private Information and Insider Trading. The paper examines whether corporate insiders trade based on private information about audited findings. Welcome, professors. Thanks for speaking with us about your important new research. Professor Taylor, let me start with you. Tell us why long term investors like CII members should care about your new research on insider trading.
1: Sure. So, you know, big picture, our research uses big data and analytic tools to sort of sift through information out there in the market and discern patterns and detect opportunistic trading by officers and directors. This particular paper was based on data analysis of all available Form 4s that have to be filed by officers and directors on SEC Edgar. And for those who aren't aware, a Form 4 is when an officer and director has to publicly disclose the trades that they make in their firm. Now, a couple of caveats, right, were based on Form 4 filings. So when I use the word or when we use the word insider trading in the podcast or in the paper, We're talking about the trading of corporate insiders, of managers and directors, which may be legal or illegal, not necessarily the illegal trading that you might see by hedge funds or on Wall Street, you know, whatnot. The other caveat is that we're using big data. So when we get into the paper and on the podcast, we can't really, while we can identify suspicious behavior and raise red flags about certain individuals and certain companies, we can't really speak to legality. All we can say is, hey, this behavior looks really suspicious and raises a red flag, but we're not going to say it's necessarily uh, illegal. So, you know, that's kind of a trade-off. When you use big data, you can sift through all of the available information out there in the market, but you can't get into any specific context, and that context would need to be taken into account in each particular case. So again, we're looking at recurring patterns in the data, but we're not doing a deep dive on any one company. So now that I've sort of caveated that the particular paper examines whether corporate insiders trade on private information about audit outcomes before those audit outcomes are publicly disclosed in the 10K. Effectively, do insiders trade on the date that the auditor privately briefs the board on the result of the audit? So imagine a board sitting around and they have a meeting with, where the auditor comes in and conveys to them, hey, we've got some information. Here's what the, how the audit is shaping up. Here are some problems. So that occurs prior to the audit report being disclosed in the 10K. And so we're going to look at whether they trade around that briefing date. And the answer appears to be a resounding yes. We document sort of abnormal selling by corporate insiders shortly after the date that they are briefed by the auditor on the audit findings, and that those sell trades anticipate what we would call bad or negative audit outcomes, such as material weaknesses, going concern, opinions, and the like. So your question is, why would long-term institutional owners or you know, the constituents in some sense care about this phenomenon and insider trading by officers and directors more generally? And I really think that there are three reasons to care as a long-term institutional owner. First, opportunistic insider trading timed in close proximity to material negative events, even if it is not illegal, but it's timed very suspicious to coincide with the material negative event is going to invite litigation and is going to put negative attention on the company and the officers and directors. And that's something that if it is not illegal, if it is certainly legitimate, then that's something that the company would seek to avoid. And shareholders would, of course, be concerned about litigation risk for the company and and negative publicity. The second reason cuts to the heart of the well-known value proposition for good corporate governance. So it's widely believed that better or more appropriate corporate governance, you know, leads to better functioning company, more efficient decisions and, and higher uh, shareholder value. Now, one can think of evidence that insiders time their trades around board briefing dates or other events, even if it is not illegal, you can view that as a corporate governance failure in the sense that the internal controls over insider trading and potentially that of the GC office have failed to act as an effective gatekeeper. So you have this situation where you have a potentially open trading window and there's a material event but the trading window isn't being closed or isn't being locked down. And so in some sense, you can view opportunistic trading and correlated with these material events, again, even if it is not illegal, as indicative of a governance problem, of an internal controls problem, and as a problem with the GC's office. And the third reason is sort of more subtle, is what research has shown is that opportunistic trading tends to portend or foreshadow opportunistic reporting and fraud. So this is what is known as the slippery slope the notion that the opportunistic trading that we document in our study would predict earnings management in the future or future restatements and reporting fraud. And so if you're playing fast and loose with your trades and your internal controls over trading, what else are you playing fast and loose with? And as a long-term shareholder, you really want to know and in some sense be able to detect issues with the financials, with earnings management, restatements, and fraud before they actually become public. So by tracking insider trades and the timing of those trades in relation to certain events, investors can get red flags about poor financial performance and issues with the quality of the earnings and the quality of the financial results before those events actually become public. So another way to think about it is that you can use these opportunistic trades to inform a, a sort of a fraud prediction model, if you will, or an accounting restatement prediction model.
0: Professor Taylor, at an April 3rd congressional hearing, Carolyn B. Maloney of New York, who chairs the Investor Protection, Entrepreneurship, and Capital Markets Subcommittee, the House Committee on Financial Services, discussed draft legislation that she's planning on sponsoring entitled the 8K Trading Gap of 2019. That draft bill would direct the Securities and Exchange Commission to issue a rule requiring public companies to put in place policies and procedures that are reasonably designed to prohibit officers and directors from trading company stock after the company has determined that a significant corporate event has occurred and before the company has made an SEC filing publicly disclosing such an event. In an April 9th letter to the subcommittee, CI generally supported Chair Maloney's draft bill. Does your new research provide any evidence that would lend further support to Chair Maloney's draft legislation?
1: Absolutely. uh, That's a great question. The draft legislation focuses on trading by officers and directors between a material event and the disclosure of the event as commonly occurs in 8Ks. So, for example, you sign a supply contract. And then if it's a material supply contract, it then needs to be disclosed in an 8K within a few days. So there's interesting research out there by um, Alma Cohen, Joshua Mitt, and current SEC Commissioner Robert Jackson that suggests that insiders trade between the material event and when that event is disclosed in the 8K. If anything, our results suggest that the bill and their results could be generalized and expanded. And what do I mean by that? The bill and their research really looks at the 8K events, the material events that would trigger an 8K and then disclosure in an 8K. And our research is looking at audit briefings and audit results. Is the auditor briefing the board on an audit failure, an internal control failure, or suspicion of fraud at the firm, a material event? So imagine you're in the board meeting and you learn one of these things. Is that a material event? I would argue, and my colleagues argue, most academics would argue, yes, absolutely. Now, is that information something that is disclosed in an 8K? It is not uh, rather it's going to be disclosed in the audit report contained in the firm's 10k not in the 8k and there is a much wider gap for almost all of the firms in our sample between the audit report and the, and the 10k I think on average we found a 20-day gap so in this sense our results suggest the bill should be expanded to prohibit trading from the period when the board learns the outcome of the audit and associated issues until the disclosure of the audit report in the 10k In that sense, our research suggests it's a legitimate bill. There's a legitimate concern out there that needs to be addressed, but that the bill should be expanded to move beyond 8K events to include the audit, for example. And one additional thing that's useful for background for the bill that people may not be aware is those policies that the draft legislation is calling for companies to put in place. I would like to suggest that those be required public disclosure. Most firms right now have something called an insider trading policy that governs the trading of officers and directors, and that puts in place trading blackout windows and may require general counsel to approve the trades. Shockingly, those trading policies are not mandatory disclosure under current SEC rules. Every company has one, but they're not required disclosure. So you can't actually find them for all of the companies. And so I've done some research on this a couple of years ago and we tried to locate these policies. We found them for some firms, found them for others, contacted some firms, they refused to share theirs. So a first step would not only be putting the policies and procedures in place, second step is disclosure.
0: Professor Taylor, at the same April 3rd congressional hearing I referenced earlier, there was a discussion of a draft bill that subcommittee member Jim Hines of Connecticut is expected to sponsor. The draft bill is entitled the Insider Trading Prohibition Act, and it would largely codify the existing case law on insider trading. The goal of the bill is to create a clear, more consistent standard for insider trading for both courts and market participants to follow. Our April 9th letter to the subcommittee, uh, CII also generally supported Representative Himes' draft bill. Given that your research focuses on insider trading related issues, uh, do you have any view on the merits of Representative Himes' draft legislation?
1: Again, great question about, about draft legislation. I do think that we need to make the distinction here between trading by corporate officers and directors on private information and trading by outsiders on private information. For example, a hedge fund who might pay somebody for a tip or something like that. If a corporate insider has private information about the firm and they trade on it, For example, in our sample, if an officer and director has private information about the firm and they trade on that information, then they failed in their fiduciary duty to either disclose the information or abstain from trading. So that notion of disclosure, abstain, governs the trading of corporate insiders and is relatively clear-cut legally. However, if an outsider, say a hedge fund manager, trades on private information, have they broken the law? Here is where existing case law becomes murky, and this is what the draft legislation that Representative Hines sponsored becomes useful. How did they acquire the private information? Did they obtain the information legally? Did they buy the information? Did the tipper receive a benefit? Did the trader know that the tipper who provided them with the information received the benefit? Surprisingly to many, the current law requires that to convict the trader, potential hedge fund manager in this case, the tipper needs to benefit from passing the information along to the trader. If there's no discernible benefit to the tipper from providing the trader with the information, it's actually very difficult to convict the trader of insider trading. The act would effectively eliminate the need for prosecutors to show that the tipper received a benefit in order to convict the trader. It effectively says, hey, insider trading is insider trading, regardless of whether the tip was purchased or the tip was gifted this bill is necessary to clarify that we can can go after and prosecute the trader regardless of whether the trader was aware of or paid for the tip.
0: Thank you. Last question. Now, Professor Schroeder, let me get you involved here in the discussion. The conclusion uh, to your research paper states that, quote, with respect to regulators, empirical evidence on how audits affect insider trading potentially represents an important missing piece in deliberations on auditing standards, unquote. As you know, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board establishes auditing standards or the audits of public companies. CII regularly comments on proposed auditing standards and on the PCOB's standard setting agenda. What current PCAOB auditing standards do you believe should be reconsidered in light of your research findings?
2: Our study has a lot of relevance to the current PCOB standard setting agenda. I'm not sure if the listeners on the podcast are aware of the 2017 PCAOB standard that's going to change the audit report. This standard's going to go in effect in 2019 for large accelerator filers and uh, 2020 for everyone else. Historically, the audit report has always been kind of a one-size-fits-all approach that provided three boilerplate paragraphs, and every publicly traded company would receive the same type of audit opinion. And the only type of deviation that you would see is modified opinion language that would talk about material weakness issues, common concern issues, or other potential discussion of restatements to prior financial statements in the audit opinion. And that's what we exploit in our current research study. The new PCAOB standard is going to switch to a very tailor specific audit report that talks about unique client issues. So the auditor is now going to be doing disclosures on critical audit matters that talk about risk related to the client, as well as any issues with financial reporting or disclosure risks as well, and how the auditors respond to those risks. So if you think about the fact that we find results in our study with just one additional paragraph, when we switch to this new client-specific audit disclosure, I would actually expect that our results have the potential to be more profound, I guess, with this new audit reporting model, because I think we can all agree that specific disclosures on the client are going to increase the informational advantage that key insiders are going to have. So I guess the takeaway here from the study is, as we're switching to this new audit reporting model, we want to make sure that general counsels at companies, their executives, their board members, their audit committee members, in addition to auditors, as well as regulators, including the PCAOB, are aware of our findings so that as we transition to this new audit reporting model, we can make sure that we help try to curtail some of this uh, potential behavior. Another aspect of the PCAOB that I think is important for their standard-setting agenda and it leads to what Dan mentioned in his response to the first question. When you see insider trading practices, they're usually predictive of some sort of future outcome that could be negative. So we believe that the PCOB, with their risk standards, and they have a number of standards that address a risk assessment by the auditor, that auditors should continue to look at insider trading practices of their clients to determine if there's any elevated risk that they want to then adjust their audit strategies going forward to help address those risks. In that regard, I think our our study does have a lot of implications for the new standards that are coming out on the audit report model as well as the risk assessment standards.
0: Thank you very much. That concludes our podcast. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I want to thank our special guests, Professor Samana Riff and Joseph Schroeder of the Kelly School of Business at Indiana University and Professor Daniel Taylor of the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, or the Council's views on insider trading or auditing standards, please feel free to contact me at jeff, J-E-F-F, at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening.
2: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.